You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. I wonder if you've ever experienced an undeserved second chance. An undeserved second chance. It can be a very profound experience to do that. I had my own very profound experience of... um, of receiving an undeserved second chance. I know most of you are familiar with this story, but we've, we've had a few people join our church recently, so I'll, um, I'll bring you up to speed on my own story. My own story of experiencing God's grace by, by way of second chance was precipitated by experiencing um, an undeserved second chance at the hands of a bunch of Salvation Army soldiers. I was 19. 19 years old, I went to America to escape all the mess that I'd made in Australia. It's a very effective policy. I think you'll see teenagers doing it over and over again. There's a long history to this. They say they're trying to broaden their horizons. What they're really doing is escaping the mess that they've made for themselves, all right? Let's just be clear about that. And that's exactly what I was doing. I went to America to do that because they would give me a visa and a place to live. And, um, and I was interested in the work because it was, um, it was work reaching out to underprivileged kids and I was, I was into that. I didn't realise that Salvation Army were Christians, let alone a Christian denomination. And so we had this collision when I arrived there in America. Oh yeah, here's a picture. I'm on the right, by the way. That's me. And uh, there's Tupac and Biggie before they... Actually, Tupac was my best little buddy, Deontay. He was, uh, he was a dear, dear little friend of mine. Before I had the opportunity to get to know any of these people, I was fired from this organisation because we just collided with one another. We, it was a clash of cultures, um, Australia and America. It was a clash of Christian culture, my upbringing versus theirs. It was, uh, yeah, it was just a huge collision. I won't go into the details, but I was fired. And then as, uh, I, st- I stayed around for a week as they tried to organise me to be shipped off to a, a Jewish camp. Um, <laughs> I probably had more in common with those guys than these guys at that time. Um, but during that time, God really showed up and, and moved in some very very profound ways in my life and in the lives actually of the, the people who had fired me and we had the sense, very strong sense that though we didn't know what he was doing, he was doing something in this and so I was extended by them a second chance and that really, uh, without that, I don't think I would be here right now. I, I may not be a Christian and, and, and this, is, this is how life works. Often Often our, our entire kind of existence hinges on these key moments. And for me, this is one of those key moments. And to this day, I kind of get a bit emotional when I think about the fact that I was given this, frankly, undeserved second chance. And it wasn't just a second chance given to me by the camp, but actually that was just kind of a foreshadowing of the second chance extended to me by God himself. All of this happened in the space of a couple of weeks and it completely changed my life forever. The book of Zechariah is long. It's like a minor prophet with an asterisk, as Jimmy just told you. It's 14 chapters. It's not just long, it's hard to understand. Most of this book is I still don't really get it, all right? So we're all in the same boat if we're not getting this book in its entirety this morning. 
But I think the big idea that Zechariah wants to communicate is that our God is a God of second chances. If you remember last week, Haggai was prophesying about 18 years after the return of the Israelites from Babylon to Israel, return of the exile. The Persians have come and destroyed Babylon and let them go back to Israel. Um, Zechariah is around the same time, about 20 years. In fact, exactly 20 years. We can date this book to the month um, because of the context that he gives us. And 20 years after the exile, he is prophesying to the people and what he wants them to know and what he wants us to know is that though we might doubt our worthiness before God, though we might doubt whether he could ever forgive us for the things that we've done, God is faithful even when we are faithless. So there's the big idea, all right? That's, you're not going to get much more than that this morning, but we're going to make our way through this book and just I'm going to pull some stuff out of it and see if if God can't remind us this morning of this most beautiful good news of the gospel. So Zechariah 1, 1. Why don't you have a look at it? As with all of the minor prophets, we get introduced to the man, the main protagonist in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, Son of Berechiah, son of Ido. Excuse me, I'm going to have to do this every now and then. Zechariah. Known most famously because he's the longest winded prophet. Um, and not just, he doesn't just write a lot, but he writes a lot about what he writes, okay? And it's not entirely his fault because much of what he's writing, well, we know everything that he's writing is coming from God, but much of it is being dictated to him by an angel who is um, giving him these visions. And, uh, and, and these visions that we're about to look at are difficult to understand. I promise you, I still don't get them entirely. But they're not just difficult for us in our context, they were difficult for Zechariah, all right? You'll notice throughout these things that the angel that God is speaking through keeps saying to Zechariah, are you sure you got this? Like, this is pretty weird. Um, are you getting it? Are you getting it? Like, he's really, he's, he's, he's aware that this is difficult to understand. And as with most visions in the Bible, there's a lot that we don't get immediately and a lot that needs to be teased out. Um, Here's the eight visions for you. I've written down uh, just the kind of main titles from the Bible. Uh, this is, takes up most of chapter one through to uh, chapter six. And there's eight visions. Um, some of them we can interpret because there are other similar visions in the Bible that help us interpret these. Some of them we can interpret because of the historical context that he's in. I'm not, I don't have time and nor the understanding, frankly, to take us all the way through here. But I found a really good, succinct, big-picture summary of these eight visions from a guy named Mark Dever. And he, he said this, The eight visions present a picture of the whole world at peace under the rule of God's anointed priest and king. So you read all through those eight visions, and if you distill it down, that's basically what you come out with. A picture of the whole world at peace under the rule of God's anointed priest and king. You can see why this speaks so clearly to the people of God who have been through the ringer in terms of their own political history. Both 
kingdoms destroyed, both kingdoms exiled, now returned, trying to figure out how do we get this thing going again? How are we going to govern this whole thing? Is the temple that important anymore? Does God still want to dwell with us? All of this in the midst of their tumultuous background makes sense. But I think for us, if we're going to be honest, if any of us is brave enough to read the news anymore or or to, to watch it, this, this vision is a compelling one for us as well. We have learned in recent history that the world is not at peace and we have learned in recent history that we can't put our trust in human rulers. There is no Messiah coming to save us in a political sense. I mean, with our rulers, we don't even know who's ruling. I mean, do we, does anyone know who the Prime Minister is anymore? It's, it's hard to keep up. So listen, this is the picture that God wants us to have. This is the hope. This is where we put our hope. It's not in political conquest, but in the world, the whole world at peace under the rule of God's anointed priest and king. And if you've read through the book of Hebrews or you were here a couple of years ago when we preached through it, you'll know that the book of Hebrews, the writer, is one of his big ideas is that he wants to communicate mainly to a Jewish audience and, and to let them know that all the things the prophets were talking about has been realized in Jesus. All that stuff that those minor prophets were on and on and on about and the major prophets on and on and on about, all that stuff has been realized. All that stuff they talked about was just a shadow of the reality which is in Jesus. So in Hebrews 4 particularly, the writer wants to let us know that Jesus is both priest and king. Jesus is both priest and king. And that's where he says, you know, because Jesus is priest, he can sympathise with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He both knows what it is to be tempted and he's the one who saves us from our sin. He's the mediator, God's priest, who makes sacrifices on our behalf. That is one full and final sacrifice of himself on the cross for our sin. He's the priest who's also the sacrifice. Then he says, he's not just that. He's not just the priest who can kind of come alongside us and encourage us. He's not only the priest who makes sacrifice to save us. He's also the king who rules over and protects us. This is all the one person, Jesus. It's what the writer of the Hebrews is so, so worked up about. Jesus is our Priest and king. And this is who Zechariah was talking about as he had these visions. This was God communicating to him, This is who I am sending. So, in a weird way, even though we don't fully get these visions, we understand them better than Zechariah did. He had an idea of what God was trying to communicate about his saving prophet, uh, prophet priest, and king. But we have experienced. Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. So they're the, the eight visions he begins with. Then he gets into these two sermons. He starts preaching, and, 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 and the two sermons are, are these. The first is a reflection on why the Jews were brought into exile. Remember, they've just returned. This is a reflection on what has gone before and why it happened. The second looks ahead to the future deliverance that God will grant his people. So they've experienced deliverance from, uh, from the Babylonians, but 
Zechariah wants them to know that was just a little foreshadowing of the true deliverance that you're going to experience. There's something better yet to come. So first sermon, reflection on why, why all this bad stuff happened. This is basically it. This is the big idea. This is God as a loving daddy explaining why his people were disciplined in the way they were. He's explaining to them why they had to go through that excruciating experience of, of having their nation squashed and their people exiled. This is a loving daddy explaining what happened to them. So in, in, in chapter 7 and verse 8 to 13, this is what he says. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah. The Lord of armies says this, make fair decisions. Show faithful love and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the resident alien or the poor, and do not plot evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder. They closed their ears so they could not hear. They made their hearts like a rock so they so as not to obey the law or the words that the Lord of armies had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. Therefore, intense anger came from the Lord of armies. He's saying, here's why you're exiled. I sent to you minor prophet after minor prophet, major prophet after major prophet. All this stuff was happening concurrently. I was telling you, stop oppressing the poor. Stop taking advantage of the widow. Stop arranging yourself in a way so as to diminish and demean people made in my image. I told you, I told you, I told you. Your response was turn a shoulder, turn a deaf ear, harden your heart. And so therefore, this is what was done in order to bring you back to me. This is the discipline that needed to happen so that you as my children would learn a better way. This is what loving daddies do. And if you're here this morning, you're a parent, particularly if you're a daddy, all right, you need to, you need to exercise this kind of loving care of your children. When, when the discipline happens, you need to be able to exercise that discipline in a way that explains lovingly and carefully why this is happening. It's very easy just to give the smack or to send to the naughty spot or to ground or to take away and then to neglect the more important duty, arguably, which is to explain this is why this has happened. Then it goes from an in-the-moment kind of discipline to a training, literally discipline, discipling moment. This is a loving daddy. This is what's happened and here's why it had to happen. This is not an impetuous, impulsive slapping of a kid. This is a reasoned, teachable moment. So that's the first sermon. The second sermon in chapter 8, focusing on the deliverance that will come to the people of God if they continue to hear his voice and to respond with faithfulness. Okay, so chapter 8, verse 11 to 13. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people, that is those who have returned from exile, 
as in the former days. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. For they will sow in peace, the vine will yield its fruit, the land will yield its produce, and the skies will yield their dew. I will give the remnant of this people all these things as an inheritance. As you have been a curse among the nations, house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you will be a blessing. Don't be afraid. Let your hands be strong. And then 16 and 17, these are the things you must do. Speak truth to one another. Make true and sound decisions within your city gates. Do not plot evil in your hearts against your neighbour and do not love perjury, for I hate all this. This is the Lord's declaration. So he says, first of all, the way that you've been treated in the past isn't the way you're going to be treated in the future. You're going to have something better coming to you. You are going to finally be what I wanted you to be all these years. Not a curse to those around you, but a blessing. And you're going to do all of these things because I am going to save you, he says. That's going to be the catalyst. My saving you from yourself, from your wayward tendencies, your rebellion, your sin, this merry-go-round of rebellion that his people have been on from the beginning back in Genesis 12. I'm going to save you from all of that so that you can be a blessing to those around you. And he says, here's how this is going to be manifested. He says it kind of in a negative way. It's not going to be the way that you've been acting in the past. Now you're not going to um, lie to one another. You're not going to make foolish decisions in the city, that is, political decisions. You're not going to plot evil. You're not going to love perjury, that is, defying the law, lying to the courts in order to get other people in trouble. You're not going to subvert my just rule of this nation anymore. Why? Because the whole world is going to be at peace under the rule of God's priest and king. It's this looking forward to a restoration of all things. We've seen this over and again. It's a theme throughout the Minor Prophets. This day that's coming when God's going to make all things right, finally right. But what I notice in that little, little section there at the end, verse 16 to 17, these things that he names, he designates them as things that God hates. And I just wonder, do we, do we see those things as being hateful? Like if God hates them, then it's good to hate them. Do we hate those things? Do we hate the fact that we lie to one another? And, I, you know, when you read these things, they're all at the, at the extreme end, like, you know, lying, um, true and sound decisions, city gates, plotting evil in your hearts against your neighbour, loving perjury. These, these are all extreme things, but there are derivatives of these things, toned down, kind of culturally acceptable versions of these things that we do all the time, and, and, and yet God says, I hate those things. I think the reason that he hates these things is because when they manifest themselves in a culture they lead inevitably to some of these, these patterns of behaviour that, that really characterise the people of Israel over these past couple hundred years, like the oppression of the poor, like the disregarding of widows and orphans, like 
these patterns of behavior that diminish the divinity of people. That is, they take people made in the image of God and turn them into objects or resources. These are sort of the, the besetting sins or the gateway drug sins of people who end up ruining God's mission for his people. That is, that they will be loving, that they will be kind, that, that they will be just, that they will be a blessing to the nations around them. So just mark those, that verse 16 to 17. I believe that is at root, at the root of why we don't see in our context, the church being the beautiful bride of Christ that uh, the Bible presents her to be. And indeed, Paul picks up on that very, those two verses a few times in his letters. So there's the two sermons that he preaches, eight visions, two sermons, and then the final five chapters is really a, um, a, a picture that he paints of this this saviour king that he's alluded to in the first place, this king who is going to come and, and take these people who are lost. Remember last week, Haggai told us they're meant to be building a temple. Instead, they're building their own houses. They're meant to be establishing order. They don't really know how to organise themselves. All of that is a result of, of lack of leadership. Nehemiah's doing his best. Ezra's doing a fair job. Um, uh, and Joshua is... Uh, as uh, he's being introduced to us by Zechariah as being someone who could lead their people, but none of them ends up being able to do the job. Why? Again, because they're just men. Obama is just a man. Donald is just a man. Vladimir is just a man, right? They fail us. Angela is just a woman. They all fail us. So Zechariah wants to say, there is someone coming who is more than just a man, who is going to establish this final and full peace. And he introduces us to him in a familiar passage, maybe not familiar from Zechariah, but perhaps from elsewhere, in chapter 9, verse 9. He says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, Daughter Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we're familiar with that passage, aren't we, from Easter, particularly from Palm Sunday. We're going to get into this next year. We're going to be working through the book of Mark from the beginning of February up to climaxing on Easter Sunday in April. We're going to be doing 16 chapters in 14 weeks and, uh, and we're going to see right at Palm Sunday, we're going to see this passage. Matthew's the one who, as a writer to the, the Jewish uh, Christians, went into the most kind of detail in this and he says in, in chapter 21, And verse 5, he says, Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's a direct quote from Zechariah. And and when, when Matthew saw Jesus entering Jerusalem in that fashion, on a donkey, he saw this fulfillment. He got it. He knew this is who Zechariah was talking about, that prophet king who was coming to establish peace for all time. This is Jesus. 
And then Zechariah goes on. He's, he's not this guy. He's not just a, a prophet king. He's not just a king coming to save us, uh, uh, entering the city on a donkey. He's also a suffering servant. So in chapter 12 and verse 10, he says this, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David. This continuing theme of second chances. I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. And John, seeing Jesus crucified on the cross, pierced hands and feet and side, he saw that image of Jesus on the cross. And in chapter 19, he says this, when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you may believe. That is, he's saying, I was there. I saw this with my own eyes. His testimony is true and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And also another scripture says in Zechariah, they will look at the one they pierced. John saw Jesus die on the cross. And like Matthew, he said, this is who Zechariah was talking about. This is the prophet king. This is the priest king. This is the man who was going to come, who is going to bring peace, lasting peace on earth. And even as they see him die, they get it. Friends, God is a God of second chances. But that second chance that God extends to us, that invitation, it was not cheaply bought. It's not a cheap invitation. It's not written on the back of a napkin. It's not a Vistaprint invitation, right? It's a dearly bought invitation. It was bought with the blood of the Son of God. That death, that piercing of the Son of God is what secures your invitation to return to God. You can just hear Zechariah's heart for his people to return, all right? Back in chapter 1, in verse 2 and following, he says, The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. So tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies says, Return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And I will return to you says the Lord of armies. And he goes on and on, return to me, return to me. This is the, the, this is the refrain over and over again, return. This is a God speaking to a people who have completely turned their back on him. This is a God speaking to a people who are described as adulterers, right? They have taken their marriage vows that God has made with them, torn them up and chased after prostitutes, every other God they could find. And God still says to them, return to me, return to me. I'm a God of second chances. And Zechariah gets this in part, but he looks forward to a day where this will be finally and fully secured for all people. And it happened in the life, 
death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So if you're here this morning, I can just imagine there's someone here this morning who's thinking to themselves, this guy doesn't know me. I, like, I get that God is a God of second chances and he's willing to extend those chances to church people, like, you know, good people. But you, this, this kid up the front doesn't know what I've done. He doesn't know who I am. I can imagine someone saying that because that's exactly what I say to myself. That was my main thought as a 19-year-old kid when I was extended this mercy of God, first from the camp and then from himself. That was my main thought. If only I hadn't done these things, then I might be able to accept this gift. And... Nearly 20 years later, I still think that when I'm faced with the reality of my sin and how far I've fallen from from the glory of God, my main thought as I try and gather myself up in repentance and confession, my main thought is, if only I wasn't this bad. If only things weren't this black, then maybe God could wash me white as snow. But this is the scandalous truth of the gospel. The scandalous truth is that God not only extends forgiveness to people who seemingly deserve it, but he extends it to the most wicked of his enemies. One of the most profound experiences I had in that week as I came to terms with God's extension to me of second chances was reading in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus on the cross, speaking to the thief next to him, this thief who had done nothing to deserve his love, had never been to church, wasn't baptised, didn't do the right things, never gave any money to church, right? Just list the things you think that you should do to be a good person. And Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. I, I read that and it just all at once overcame my doubt about whether God could ever love me. And then I read about the prodigal son who completely turned away from his father and yet was welcomed back with a party and a ring and a, and a, and a robe, right? These over and over again, what God wants us to know through his word is that he's a God of second chances and there is no one who is excluded from the invitation. No one. And there does come a point, I just need to be honest with you, there does come a point when if you persist in saying, God doesn't know what I've done, you know, I'm too bad to be forgiven, there does come a point where that becomes pride and arrogance. It becomes more about you not willing, being willing to receive a gift than it is about you not being able to be forgiven, all right? So you just need to be aware of that danger. Everyone who receives a second chance will first need to humble themselves and admit that they can't do it themselves. How do I know that God loves me? That's a really good question. Everyone needs to be able to answer that. 
Because if you're true to yourself, if you are honest with yourself, you'll know that there isn't much reason for him to love you. How do I know that God loves me? Romans 5, 8, God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is speaking right now to everyone who has excluded themselves from the provision of God's grace and forgiveness on the basis of their sin, right? God can't forgive me because you don't know what I've done. Paul says, uh-uh. God proves that he loves us. It's, it's the very reason that we're sinners that Christ died for us. It was while we were at our worst that he laid down his life for us. And the same Apostle John who was standing at the cross and seeing all of this happening as a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, he says in his letter, 1 John chapter 4, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. What you have before you this morning as a shadow in Zechariah fulfilled in the gospel is this extension of an invitation, not just to forgiveness for sin, but to life everlasting. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. It's an echo of what he wrote earlier in his gospel. God loved the world in this way, that he sent his one and only son so that all who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life, that they might live through him. That's, that's the invitation to you this morning. And there's no one, no one who's outside the realms of God's love and forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption and adoption. No one. In a minute we're going to Yes, we're going to sing God's praises because all of this is true. But we're also going to invite you to come and pray with us. We're just going to be down here. We want to pray with particularly, well, particularly anyone who wants to pray, really. Because we believe in the power of prayer. We believe that God is a God of healing, that God wants to move in your life, in every aspect of your life, every facet of it. But I particularly want to pray with those of you who think like I have thought, that you are outside the reach of God's grace. I'd love to pray with you that God would overcome that lie. He would overcome that misunderstanding and that you would experience, maybe for the first time, God's gracious second chance. Let me pray for us now. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Uh, we are a people of many different cultures, many backgrounds, some of us rich, some of us poor. Some of us have lived here our whole lives. Some of us are refugees from foreign lands. Lord, we are a mixed group of people here, and yet we all have at least one thing in common, that is that we are sinners and that we are saved by grace. Thank you, Lord, for the good news of the gospel. And I pray for each of us this morning 
that we would experience once again the beauty, the profundity, the enormity of your grace to us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.